0: West Coast,
1: the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms Podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms Podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my buds, Mike and Brian. Mike, how are you doing today, my friend?
0: I am a big bag of mixed emotions so i i'm gonna go with the okay ones for right now so for For a moment i thought you were going to say i am three raccoons in a trench coat i (laughs) yeah i mean honestly i feel like i'm passing at life right now like three raccoons in a trench coat because um (laughs) as our dear listeners probably do not know so i'm caring for uh, my wife who has covid and doing a day job and Picking up the slack at the church and trying to keep the house in order and parenting to kids who are doing their schooling at home. And I'm not doing any of those things well, but I did get my first dose of the vaccine. So I'm really happy about that. So so what we're saying, friends, is that when
1: you say your prayers tonight, keep Mike in them, please. And uh, Brian and, and, and myself, wife, pretty much yeah. pretty much all everybody, of us, everybody, really. yes, everybody,
2: everyone you know or have ever heard of.
1: Yes let's just have one big prayer meeting (laughs) what about you brian
2: uh well you know i came in feeling a little down and and stressed out but the last 45 minutes (laughs) 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 minus about 30 seconds right before we started but the last 45 minutes it made me feel much better (laughs) so thank you guys
1: (laughs) uh to let all of you in on the joke uh we've been trying to get this podcast started for the past 45 (laughs) minutes and it's just become a comedy of errors with false starts jokes (laughs) laughing so we finally got it going and before we jump any deeper into the show i feel like we ought to give a final shout out and well, not final because we're going to talk about them again in the future i know it but just one more word of of respect Love and farewell to the good people at Saving the Game.
0: Yeah, they they just released their last episode uh, just recently. I don't know when this is going to be with our recording schedule, but um, it was it was really heartwarming listening to their to their episode go in peace because they're they're good people and they have a fantastic show. And we get why why they're closing it down. Just they will be missed, but their episodes are staying up. So this is still an opportunity for if you like our content and you like our style, please, please, please check out Saving the Game because they're still awesome.
1: They are. I mean, we are coming up now on close to four years of doing Geek at Arms. And I can remember back before I really approached either one of you guys about starting a podcast, I, I took a look at what was out there in the Christian geek world. And I thought I did a good job of looking of Googling because I really didn't find that much. I found Game Store Profits. Uh, I found one other that is now defunct. And that was really about it. I'm kind of glad that I didn't find Saving the Game. Because if I had,
0: (laughs) you might not have started.
1: (laughs) I probably wouldn't have approached you guys and said, hey, let's start a Christian Geek podcast ourselves. Because I would have heard Saving the Game and thought, wow, these guys are already doing it. And they're doing a great job at it and much better than anything I could do. Like, there's no way we could be that good, so... <laughs> Pretty <I'm honored>. much. <laughs> but uh, even though I didn't find them until after we started this podcast, I'm glad that we did. They have been a phenomenal example of humor, content, of professionalism, and many more things done to a fantastic standard. And uh, I know we have a lot of cross-listenership and... Um, all I can say is that we will do our best to try to be as good as they are and just the best that we can be in the future. And uh, to everyone there on Saving the Game, anytime any of you get anxious to be behind the microphone again, just send us an email.
0: Yeah, we'll the- save a seat for you. And we said it on the internet, so like everybody's going to hold us accountable, you know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I feel like that's how we get most of our guests, though. Yeah. <laughs>
1: hey we should have this person on hey you can come on and then like a few months later hey hey, come on and we're like no way how do they know
2: about us (laughs) i'm still waiting for who was it that said uh john favreau to uh to give us a call
0: uh i also mentioned uh i I think i might have oh who directed willow um Oh gosh, that's embarrassing. That Ron I, Howard. Ron so, Howard. <laughs> yeah, we're still we're still waiting for him to find the podcast after our after our Willow episode. But, yeah, George right.
1: Lucas emailed us, but we said no, nah, we're okay.
0: <laughs> I ran I actually, into him and told him how much I liked Red Tails, um, <laughs> and then he was busy and he had to go. And then I woke up, but
2: well, you know, I actually worked dream. for George Lucas early in my career. Really, really. Yeah, it was a different George Lucas. It's spelled with L-O-U-C-A-S. <laughs>
0: Still. <laughs>
2: but closer he was the, uh, than I'll ever get.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: He was the owner of Baked Effects, the second company I ever worked for. Oh, uh, okay. It's kind of funny. So, yeah, I can say, yeah, I worked for George Lucas.
1: <laughs> In your mind, you're thinking, don't ask me to spell his name. Don't ask me to spell his
2: name. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: All right, well, let's jump into Geek Out. So who wants to go first?
2: I'm at the top, so I guess I'll go first. Take it away. <laughs> well, I got a new... This is going to be like the the boring part of Geek Out.
0: Uh, it's never boring with you, Brian. Don't worry about it.
2: Like a super networking nerd. <laughs> I got a new NAS, uh, Network Attached Storage Server. And so I'd, I'd lost my previous one. Um, and shortly after losing it, I also lost access to my huge four terabytes of backup data. Oh no. Because, oh yeah. Uh, I was using this. Uh, oh, I can't even remember the, the name of the company now, but they decided they wanted to discontinue their, their home backup service and said, okay, so you have this amount of time to either download all your data or transfer into the commercial. Oh yeah. I delayed. I, I procrastinated and finally I decided, you know what? It's only an extra 10 bucks a month. I'll transfer to the small business plan. And they said, Oh sorry, 2 terabytes is the limit for stuff that you can transfer and I had 4. Like, well, you couldn't have told this told us that when you made the announcement. I could right. have been downloading all of this stuff all of this time. So I lost all of that data. Mm. Fortunately, the, the like the super irreplaceable stuff I had on a separate backup on on disk, so like all of my art school projects and stuff, I can get back. So I'm I'm working on getting all of that restored, uh, getting my my digital ebook library indexed and put on there, all of my comics redownloaded and on the, on the server. Mike,
1: what and he's right not, about, what he's not sharing is that it's actually just two terabytes of Stargate SG one fan fiction. You
0: know, I mean, it's, that it's, would be a loss. That would be a loss. It's about two terabytes of
2: Stargate SG one episodes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, 10 seasons of SG one and five of Atlantis. And I had ripped them all the DVD all the DVDs onto the server. Mm. <laughs> So, yeah, that was obnoxious. Anyway, but I've got about 90 gigabytes uploaded to the new backup. Um, and I went with a, uh, a Synology, which is a little bit pricier than what I had I'd had before. But uh, And I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to spend the extra on the Synology. I'd get more space if I bought a, a cheaper one. But it was in stock, and I had the money. My mom actually gave me a, a credit on Amazon to get it. It's like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and get, I'll get the smaller one. And then I'll, I'm making a lot of money once I'm actually getting to work and I'll be able to buy the expansions later. But it turns out this thing has this, it has like pre-installed an Amazon Glacier backup program. Huh. So it's like a two or three clicks to connect it to an Amazon server and upload. And it's like, this is super easy because I'd always heard that Glacier storage was like, you have to do a lot of home built uh, interaction with it and it was kind of difficult and it's like no this thing makes it just super easy and it's cheap so I'm very very happy with the thing on I the... mean I don't know
0: what I don't know what what about home networking sounds boring but I mean <laughs> I, 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 I was yeah. all in for that and, I mean...
1: and let's be honest I'm sure we've got more than a few listeners that as soon as you said that you had a new NAS they instantly set <laughs> up tension
2: was all on you well I will give you some advice if you have one of these things and you want to use the, the glacier storage um, I tried to set a static IP on the thing because I also use it to drive my, my Amazon Fire TV so that I can send the, all those DVDs that I ripped directly to my TV um, through a program called Kodi. And Kodi relies on the device always having the same IP address on your network. So I set it with a, a manual uh, static IP, but that interrupted my backup so I could not contact Amazon. So I had to set the, the static IP on my, my router instead And then everything worked together. So don't set anything manual on the Synology NAS if you want to back up to get to Amazon. Good to know. Life lessons from Geek at Arms. Yes. (laughs) Because it wasn't boring enough the first time, so I had to just
0: up the ante there. (laughs) (laughs) I am so going to use that as a sermon illustration next week. (laughs) I'm
2: going to decline to ask you how you're going to work that into a biblical lesson. No, I'm,
0: I'm in now. I be... I wanna,
1: I'll be waiting to watch that on YouTube.
0: <laughs> oh jeez, I was lying, James. Don't do this to me. <laughs> no, you're committed now. You yeah, it on don't put internet. yourself out there then. <laughs> Dang it. As you it said, it's on the internet me. now. <laughs> it's like the time that I, uh, the time that I said that I took Klingon in high school on on Retro Rewind. <laughs> it's like, okay, now you're reading the Klingon because this is what lawyers get. <laughs>
2: So, where was I going from there? (laughs) You're going to Frostpunk, I think, is where you're going. You're going from Glacier
0: to Frostpunk. Yes.
2: Uh, So, on the video game side, I, like last summer, I bought Frostpunk. It was on sale on Steam. And I didn't get around to installing it until uh, I was, you know, on vacation during Christmas. And of course, I'd waited six months to install it and it wouldn't run. So, I was like, ah. I try all the things, and they're their troubleshooting guide, and it still won't run. So I try to get a, a refund for it, because, you know, it's a game that I never got to play. And they say, well, sorry, it's been more than seven days since you purchased it. It's like, but you can tell that I never installed it until now, you jerks. So I had to continue hacking at it until I finally did get it to run. It turned out that the problem was uh, conflict with my mouse driver, of all things. What? Hmm. Yes. Don't, don't buy weird. one of those Razer gaming mice. They're uh, the thing is,
0: it just doesn't work. <laughs> I've not had a anyway. driver conflict since, uh, since. I know, like, the, the like 90s. Windows ninety five. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that would <laughs> do it.
2: Yeah. Uh, so anyway, but Frostpunk is a survival RTS. You're you're dropped in this city that there's this new ice age coming, and you've got this big reactor heater thing that's going to warm your city. So you've got to get the coal, and you've got to get the food, and you've got to get the wood and the steel and everything, and build stuff and research stuff, just like any other RTS. Except there's no bad guys. The only enemy is winter, and it is brutal. I, mean, it I is can insane. relate. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you can. Uh, it is. A, it's a very very difficult game. I'm working on the third or the fourth scenario, and it's my, I think my fifth attempt at it. I got almost to the end of it last time, and then. They changed the rules on me, and all of a sudden the winter came, and I had to evacuate. And I was like, oh, wait. You never said anything about evacuating. Uh. <laughs> uh, but it's it's an interesting and challenging game. I was just going to say,
1: when you said that the bad guy is winter, I immediately thought back to that old holiday movie from the, the Rankin-Bass stop-motion animated special, A Year Without Santa Claus, heat Miser and snow Miser." I'm like, really? You're fighting that guy?
2: Yes. It's a big surprise at the end of the game, you know, it's all serious. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the, the snow miser shows up and is like, wait, what? <laughs> and what I'm reading right now, uh, I know James, you know, Mike Sisson, uh, mm-hmm. I think Mike knows him by reputation. Um, but he has allowed me to, uh, be a beta reader for a novel he's working on called the clockwork wizard. And it's a, uh, it's a gas lamp fantasy. And I won't say too much about it because I don't know exactly how much he's, he's shared publicly about what it's about. Um, but it's pretty well written. I'm impressed with it. Um, it's got some some shades of Dresden files. It's got a little bit of... Uh, I don't think he's actually read Rivers of London. I recommended it to him. Uh, actually, in a conversation this past week, he, he'd not heard of it. But if you're familiar with Rivers of London, it's got a little bit of that in it. Uh, hmm. And yeah, it's I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. I hope that uh, he can find a... Find somebody who wants to publish it. He's already working on the second one, so he's obviously fairly confident about it.
1: That was going to be my next question: is if he has a publication date yet? But since he's still shopping for a publisher, well, I'm not I'm... sure
2: if he's what his situation is with the mm. publishing. Um, I just know that he's right now. I think this is the second draft. Um, oh, so, he's so still, it's always yeah. He's still got some massaging to do on it.
1: So I really uh, would love to read this.
2: Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, the advice that I give him will be will be helpful and that I can be of use to him in getting it done.
1: Uh, Mike, little known fact, uh, Mike Sisson, he was my very first GM. He introduced me into RPGs when he ran a oh, uh, that's werewolf, right. werewolf the Apocalypse game, including myself, his brother, Brian, and one or two others. But yeah, that was the first game I ever... Ever participated in?
0: That is I so totally
1: cool. forgot
2: about that one.
1: So anyway, uh, moving on. Was that it for you?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, that covers cool.
1: me. All right, I will go next. So over the holidays, as always, Xbox Online usually has a plethora of games for sale, and one that had caught my eye a while ago that I thought looked like some fun was Marvel's Avengers game. I liked the videos I had seen. Uh, The reviews were kind of middling, but I kind of only partially pay attention to reviews, whether it's for games or movies or TV shows or whatever. And uh, it was on sale, so I decided to grab it, use a little bit of Christmas money. And it's a beautiful game. When I first started playing it, I really enjoyed it. A lot of it, especially at the beginning, is taken from the perspective of the character Kamala Khan, who comic book readers will know as Miss Marvel. Watching her youthful idealism and excitement over A-Day about getting to go to the Avengers Day on the helicarrier and seeing all of these heroes. And it would just – it really drew me in. It was an incredibly well-done level. And then about – there's this event called A-Day. There's an accident. And the heroes go into hiding. And it, it, I thought it was very well done. And it was to a point. Because as you begin searching out and gathering up the heroes of the Avengers again, that's where the flaws in the game really became apparent. Mm. It had great small moments. Like the relationship and interplay between Kamala and Bruce Banner. Some of the quieter scenes were fantastic. There was one that stood out where they're on a trip to find Tony and instead of taking a Quinjet or some other fancy transportation, they're in this 1970s era dirty Winnebago (laughs) and they're driving along and everything is quiet except for the sound of the road Bruce is driving. Kamala has like a 7-Eleven big gulp <laughs> in her in her hands. I mean, the thing is the size of her head, and she's like doing that thing where you drink out of a straw, and it's like. Just slurping along on it Happiest girl And Bruce is just
0: (laughs) And Banner is getting getting irritated You
1: you can see his fingers Just (laughs) tightening On On the steering wheel And then she reaches down And turns the radio on And it's this happy pop song And she starts jamming to it And his hand just Shoots down (laughs) Turns it off And goes slowly back to the steering wheel. And you're just waiting for his eyes to turn green at this point. (laughs) And she's oblivious. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was a great moment. And I wish that there were more of those. One thing that really hurt it was the level design. Or should I say the lack of level design. Mm -hmm. It had a set type of levels. There was a mountainous desert, a forest... Generic city slash townscape and aim base. And once you've played one of those, you've played them all.
0: Oh, wow. Because they
1: just reuse over and over and over again.
0: Oh, they should have at least just introduced ice physics into one of the levels just because that always makes games better. Mm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they try to introduce new bad guys. Basically, you're fighting against the organization of aim. But once again, oh, there's the ground units, or there's the big robot units, there's the flying units. It's just rinse and repeat with just little variations, which is an incredible disappointment. Like the only other super villain that really makes an event, well, uh, Taskmaster shows up, the Abomination shows up. But I mean, you're talking about a comic franchise that's got like 80 plus years of lore and history behind it. Faceless aim bad guys make up 95% of the enemies you face. It should have been called Avengers colon the missed
0: opportunity. Oh, <laughs> no. That reminds me of missed Uru, but you know, yeah. for both reasons. Go well, on. The other thing that really bothered <laughs> me was that they introduced a grind
1: into the game. Oh. To make your character stronger, you should beat up bad guys or you find, they, you find chests throughout the game and it gets gear for your characters, which... Goes on them, but it's kind of invisible, but it still boosts their abilities. Of course, different color chests makes better equipment. And I'm like, um, excuse me, can you please get your destiny out of my Avengers game? <laughs>
0: <laughs> like putting gear onto Bruce Banner just seems like a waste.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it, it would make sense for Tony Stark, you know, upgrade the Iron Man suit. But Thor doesn't really need that. He's got one piece of gear.
0: It's literally a god hammer. Look, and if if you put if you put any gear on the Hulk anywhere but his pants, I mean it's going to get broken.
1: <laughs> yes. The ultimate Hulk equipment, pants of uru. <laughs>
0: It's like, geez, it's one of those things like I need some new dress slacks and, and for work. And I would really like to know where Banner does his shopping because that, they <laughs> seem pretty durable.
1: And in, in one clever scene as the helicarrier, which first is just a wreck in the desert, but slowly gets repaired and upgraded. You can explore it and go into different Avengers rooms. Bruce Banner's room all over his bed are just brand new and torn pairs of pants. <laughs> <laughs> You feel sorry for him, like, man, this guy, his shopping bill must be huge. You just must go to Sam's, find his size, or five sizes
0: bigger, and then buy in bulk. There's a wholesale supplier who thinks that he's running a j- business. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. Well, Mike, you could, you could get those, uh, those Hulk pants that stretch out, but the trouble is they only come in purple.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, See, man, somewhere for me.
1: in the East Coast, there's a store called Pants and Arrows.
0: <laughs> it's it's
1: pants and arrows and it's just for the hulk and hawkeye i think we need to start this brand there you go <laughs> so uh, all that being said i finished the storyline i actually
2: know oh, how to do ahead. that
0: too <laughs> <laughs> there's,
2: there's this whole guide on creating a brand and, a, and distributing products through amazon and you just buy Chinese products and put your branding on them and you sell them on Amazon and they drop ship it? Oh my gosh.
0: (laughs) Pants and Arrows, a subsidiary of Geek at Arms.
1: (laughs) Hey, come on down to Pants and Arrows. We're on (laughs) I-25, off the beltway! (laughs) Oh my gosh. I finished the main storyline, and even though there is some bonus content and there's still a couple of missions you can do post... I just I don't have a desire to do it because it's just going to be more of the same levels, the more of the grind to try to get a little bit better equipment. And there's not much of a draw for me to keep doing that. So uh, I think instead, I'm just going to let this one rest. I got hours of entertainment out of it. And uh, Star Wars Squadrons was on sale again. So I think I'm going to grab that (laughs) and uh, give that a try. And I'll give a review of that on the next episode. But moving on from Avengers into more video game stuff. So after I had mentioned that I had bought my wife a new uh, Switch Lite for Christmas, was it Christmas I bought it for her, or was it anniversary
0: or Day. birthday, or, birthday. Pandemic. Or, 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 or pandemic or whatever? It's pandemic. Yes,
1: exactly. But I bought her a <laughs> Switch Lite, and before that, she had had. Well, I bought. I had bought her years ago a Game Boy Advance SP. We had been letting my daughter play it. Uh oh. And, well, um, we have all played video games, and we've all come up against levels or bosses that frustrated us. And we've all shown that frustration and anger in various ways. Uh, Unfortunately, she did (laughs) by throwing the Game Boy to the ground. Oh, no. And when she did that, the shell cracked. And pieces came off at at the pivot point. And even though it still worked, still turns on just fine. The internals are fine. That plastic is gone. And I thought, well, shoot, this thing's gone. I even looked into replacements because I know Joy still likes to play it sometime. And used Game Boy Advance SPs are still going for a lot of money online, which I don't get, <laughs> but they are. So that, well, wait a minute. It's just the shell. So a quick Google search later, and I found. Uh, on amazon a company that makes replacement shells nice and it's the shells all the screws some other pieces and even the two screwdrivers a phillips head and a like a triple bladed head for about 15 bucks nice nice yeah and i thought well for 15 bucks this thing can't be no it's got a thousand five-star reviews and some videos okay we're gonna give it a try and even if it is junk, it's I'm only out 15 bucks. Got it in. It was actually just as good as the official Nintendo case. That's um, great. It's been a long time since I've had the chance to stretch my electrical legs, uh, mm-hmm. trading out pieces and components. But I enjoyed it. And... My only gripe was that the, the new screws were of much inferior quality. Like, after I got them in, I realized, as always happens, you get the casing back on, you get it screwed on, and you find that an extra screw. Like, wait, that's an extra. No, there's not supposed to be any extra screws. Crud. Got to <laughs> open it back up. Well, the new screws were just tightening them up, stripped them a little bit. Oh. So I was, like, trying to unscrew them. Like, oh, this is bad. But uh, I have other tools, and I have a Leatherman, so I made it work. So I got it off, and I just used the old screws that worked just fine, but it's up, it's running, works perfectly fine, and uh, it was a fun little project, and I'm glad that it all worked out.
2: Now you're making me feel all guilty about this throttle control that I still have sitting down behind me that I haven't fixed yet.
1: <laughs> Probably a little bit of difference, because honestly, when I cracked open the Game Boy, is like, oh, wow, this thing's a lot simpler than I thought it was going to be. hmm
0: there's just I'll... a little hamster running in a wheel in there. It's we have no idea how it works.
1: And all he did look at me was just feed me. Gave him a couple of pellets and he was fine.
2: <laughs> what is my purpose in life? You run Tetris. <laughs> uh, you, you take these little blocks, you run them up to the top of the screen and you drop them. Exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like that could have been a classic Nintendo game as well.
2: <laughs> oh my God. That hamster break. Nintendo games in which you have to operate the the behind-the-scenes of the other Nintendo games.
0: You know, <laughs> well, they there's, were a, there's a n- enough of a Goomba community Factory out there. Factory 64. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: speaking of classic games, though, real quickly, we found a game store in the town next to us called Founded Electronics and Video Games. Uh, it's in a little town called Watagua, just about uh, 15 minutes west of where we live. And it's a classic and modern video game store. I walked in to check it out. And I was blown away by the nostalgia that was present in this place. I mean, literally, it hit me like a fan and about blew me out the door. Because to <laughs> my left were stacks upon stacks of NES and SNES games, original Game Boy games, Game Boy Advance, SP. I mean, all of them, Sega, uh, Sega CD, Turbo Graphics 16 Oh, wow. my
0: gosh.
2: Neo Geo. Still cost $600?
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, Atari Jaguar. I'm trying to think of what else
2: I saw. Well, you didn't say ColecoVision yet.
0: <laughs> well, they did have and like We haven't the... had Indiana Jones run in saying it belongs in a museum yet, but you know. <laughs>
1: they did have the Atari 2600. I don't think yes. they had a ColecoVision. Uh, they did have various Ataris. The Super Famicom system.
0: Did they have the ill-fated uh, virtual Game Boy? They what did, stick actually. Your oh my god! You mean
1: the Migraine Inducer 3000? that's the one
0: you've seen yes. this
1: i was working at a walmart electronics department when that came out we decided to break one open and test it and i played the tennis game i only played it for like 20 25 minutes i took my face away and instantly was smashed in the face with a sledgehammer of a migraine yes so i'm like nope never again well at least not until my next shift <laughs> yeah because it was new it was exciting and I was stupid <laughs> <laughs> they also had like old Sega Master Systems. Uh, lots of fantastic classic games there. So uh, sorry for that side trip, but we'll be heading. Yeah, we, that's what we, we do. Yeah,
0: yeah. We we were suffering through it. I mean, no one. We, we were too just too polite to stop you as what was going
1: yeah, on. Yeah, because no one here likes classic video games. No, no, no one at all. Uh, so for the best bit of my geek out, you guys are familiar with Mythos and Ink mm-hmm. and uh, their devotional "Thy Geekdom Come." Well, last year they put out a call for people to write devotionals because they were going to do a volume two. And I decided to write one and I submitted it to make a long story short. After a couple of emails, a couple of rewrites, it got accepted. Hooray! And congratulations! Thank you. And I've, I've signed the contract. And it is now in the publishing stage, and Thy Geekdom Come, Volume 2, according to the Mythos and Inc. website, will be released uh, March 42nd. Mar-
0: March Hooray! 42nd? Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't, 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 Mike, don't. Mike has the right
1: response. Yes.
2: Yay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs>
0: See, there was a shift from the Gregorian calendar to the Julian calendar, and then to make up for the number of days that we lost in that transition. They just just added added some days to March, March, but just that one time, except when we come to a quadruple leap millennium, which is coming up this year.
2: (laughs) Ah, okay. It's all clear now. I understand. See? Mm -hmm.
0: And that will wrap up my geek out. Then I guess I'll go next, since, you know, you two already did.
2: (laughs) We can start back up at the top of the NAS again. <laughs>
0: okay. Wait, just at, the, just at the top of the NAS? We could start with the beginning of the, you know, Welcome to Geek at Arms. I mean, we did a <laughs> wait, number wait. of those earlier. <laughs> Which
1: welcome? Because we had a few of those.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Brian has to do the welcome this time. Okay. Uh, I am... A little bit slim on my on my geeky things, but one thing that I am doing is have you heard of uh, the title On Time by Ken Bonshine? I have heard of that. Yes, I believe I know what you're speaking. Guess what? I'm actually reading it um, and it's really, really good. Uh, On Time is a history of timekeeping in the Western world. And I feel like that doesn't quite describe how good (laughs) this book is, because it is a fascinating look on how is it in the Occidental world that we viewed time? Why did we keep time? How did we keep time? And it's a lot more complicated, especially as we're transitioning from the ancient world to the medieval world, than you would ever expect. I mean, we... I mean, I kind of had this general idea that, Okay, you've got this sundial and, you know, when the shadow is at shortest, that's when you kind of make that mark there. And then you just kind of make the other marks around it. But that only works uh, sort of because the amount of time the sun spends in the sky changes every day. And uh, I mean, as those of us in New England in the winter are very apt to tell you that it does not stay up there for 12 hours, that is for sure. And, you know, there's, there's a number of cultural and and philosophical influences as to why you would keep time and what function it has. And this book does an excellent job of breaking down how and why and it's just written in fascinating prose so i highly recommend especially because if you have any questions about this book or any comments uh, this would be a good time to pick this book up i don't want to go too much into where we're going with our show but please do pick this book up and do yourself that favor because it's super good And if you've got any sort of questions, comments, or remarks, we might be able to handle it on the show in the near future.
1: Dr. Ken Monashine, we've talked about him once or twice on this show before. Haven't we, Mike?
0: Have we? I think we have. I feel like we have, like, a lot. (laughs) And I'm not sorry.
1: (laughs) Me neither. You know, it's funny that you... You bring up this book because something I thought about putting on my geek out, but I didn't, was that Joy and I have recently enjoyed a show on Amazon Prime called Tudor Monastic Farm. I know that sounds like a barrel of laughs, but surprisingly, it's not a comedy.
2: It sounds like a uh, resource gathering video game like
0: <laughs> Stardew Valley. Yeah, yes, that's yes. exactly where my brain went.
1: <laughs> Except instead of like starberries and and moon bananas, it's peas. And wool, <laughs> raising pigs.
0: I don't want to hear you disparage peas and wool on this podcast, James. You're absolutely right.
1: I'm I'm not at all. But it's about a couple of um, of archaeologists you needed and to historians. Say that, didn't you did. <laughs> who I'm sorry. They go to live on a. No, a you're not. No, you're not on a Tudor farm to try to recreate life as it would have been over the course of a year on a monastic-owned Tudor farm. Okay, and that's cool. it's available on Amazon Prime. I encourage everyone who has the slightest bit of interest in history and such to go check it out. It's really well done. But in one episode, their focus was on a gentleman who was making a mechanical clock for the monastery. That its sole purpose was to ring at certain times of the day and night. Every single one of those rings was to signal when it was time for prayer whether yeah. whether it was matins vigils lauds prime uh, vespers compline that's the whole reason why they had it so mechanically never missing everybody would know they'd hear that chime no one it's time to go
0: pray and what else what else is the purpose of a clock in that context exactly so yeah these sort of things like why they kept time is is so important to the development and it's and it's all in the book so go check it out on time a history of Western timekeeping by Ken Monshine. Next on my geek out is uh, Brian talked a little bit about something that he was doing to help the the development of a work in progress. I kind of have an interesting parallel because I was doing edits and proofreading to an RPG module that was in production. Hmm. So that was really cool. Like it, it I was taking some. I was using some vacation time that was going to disappear at work and because it doesn't roll over to the next year. And I had just about two weeks of nothing on my schedule over Christmas break and too much. Nothing is a really, really bad for my brain. <laughs> and so somebody said, Hey, I, I need a proofreader and editor. Would you do this? And I'm like, this could be just the perfect thing where it's a little bit of work every day, but not too much work and it's fun. Uh, it's set in the frontier space setting and system, and I wasn't particularly experienced with it beforehand, but I got some modules and got the rulebook and just really had a great time delving into detail on, on the text and the prose that this particular author was using, and it was really great to be able to work with this person, and I was just so happy to have the project and. Uh, and I, I'm I'm really interested to see this thing come out when it's released. I, I can't say too much more because it's it there's not an NDA, but also they're not announcing it yet. Mm-hmm. So it was it was just great to work behind the scenes. Um and and I look forward to announcing it sometime in the near future.
2: Well now I, I'm not familiar with Frontier Space. Would I be correct in assuming that's a science fiction setting?
0: How did you ever guess? Dude. I'm, I'm psychic that way <laughs> Okay Tell me what I'm trying to forget about now The time
1: you sat cranberry on Cranberry sauce? The time you accidentally sat on the family's new pet
0: Which was named cranberry <laughs> sauce Oh my gosh That is so uncanny Okay So is <laughs> one of those recording sessions
2: Things like that so well <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like there there is just rule number 1. Do not hand me a narrative unless you really <laughs> want me to run with it. I I actually had a professor at our school learn this lesson at one time that when we were, you know, like the building was open. I was <laughs> I'd gotten dressed to leave on my bike and then like, oh, I'm just gonna hit the restroom before I leave. And as I was coming out, I'm wearing my safety vest, you know, my ne- day neon green vest and my, you know, and, and, and my helmet and all the other accoutrements. And one of the professors was like, ah, so you wear a helmet in the bathroom. And I, I just looked <laughs> at him and I said, Dr. Movahiti, don't you know that eighty percent of household accidents happen in the bathroom? You can't be too kid. You should wear one too. <laughs> and apparently, he laughed himself all the way back to his office. Like, to, like, don't do this unless you expect expect me to do this. Um, last bit of our of, of our geek out before we go too far down that narrative um, is. A uh, new introduction to our family life uh, we have a hedgehog in the house Hooray. Hedgehog. there's a long story as to why hedgehog and how hedgehog but do you know what and who hairs.
1: and that's hedgehog. why he wanted to forget
0: sitting on it friends because it's oh, a hedgehog no, that sad that would be so sad oh wait no that would be very bad for me yes. oh my gosh yeah <laughs> who yeah when they feel threatened they're really spiky um <laughs> But yeah, it's I have I've now kind of populated my Twitter with mostly hedgehog pics, and I'm not sorry. So Uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for it, to be (laughs) honest.
2: (laughs) He is a cute
1: little bugger. I will say that.
0: Oh my gosh, the cat had a hard hardest time trying to figure out what on earth. Wait, hold on. <laughs> I food about or not? The cat. Food. As if, <laughs> is it, well, yeah, that was one of the prerequisites. Like when my daughter introduced this concept like two years ago, I was like, you do the research and you prove to me that this new animal would be safe in a household with a predator just roaming around. And apparently, um, kitty cats respect them spikes. So <laughs> <laughs> it only takes okay. months, right? Yeah, it it was weird, the cat trying to figure it out, Uh, but they got to figure it like it was like gentle sniffs. But then when the sniffs went to like poke right on that sensitive, delicate nose, it was like, oh, whoa, hang on, hang (laughs) on. That's 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 not that's not what my instincts tell me.
1: This toy has a defensive mechanism.
0: (laughs) Going to have to keep an eye on that one. But that's kind of all that it, it. the cat pretty much considers the hedgehog its favorite TV show. Um, and it'll go to sleep in a little like they sell like little sacks for you to carry them around in because they also in temperament are like a drunk hamster like please do not carry one around the house it does not have any depth perception and it has no sense so it will wiggle out of your hands if they put that on
1: the information card next to the name describing what the pet is like drunk hamster pet stores would sell out of them
0: I don't doubt it. Also, don't buy your hedgehog from a pet store. If you want to know about hedgehog ownership, please contact me. Don't do this blind. It'll be bad. It'll be bad for everybody, you and the hedgehog. Wow, this took a serious um, turn. I was not expecting. <laughs> yeah, no. See, yeah, but, you know, I just want to put that out there. If you think, oh, hedgehog, adorable. Uh, no, Do do some research. Reach out to me if you want to. Um, I can point you in the right direction. I'm still new, but I know enough. At least my daughter had to do research for like a year uh, yeah, before heard this got
2: greenlit. They're not... Uh... The easiest pets and they've got a lot of special needs. Yes. Yes to They're
0: both. They're easily stressed. <laughs> yeah. And when they get stressed, they ball up into spikes, and spikes are not cuddly, just so you know.
1: <laughs> you end up having to buy the poor thing a service gerbil just to, you know, help calm <laughs> it down.
0: And... <laughs> uh yeah, it's a lot, which is one of the reasons why like kiddo. Wanted one, uh, and it's like okay. You need to do the research, and you need to save up your own money, uh, which is mm. th- how we got to like a two year process. <clears throat> but uh, it's been it's especially during the pandemic. It's been a great infusion of joy into our family. Very cool. Okay, so I think that brings us to our listener question for this episode. Joshua Phillips sent us another listener question, and briefly paraphrased, he writes to tell us that. He was in a situation where a church leader and parent wasn't fond of their child playing Magic the Gathering. And so he asks us, with that being the springboard, how can a Christian defend his participation in and enjoyment of Magic the Gathering when it seems to represent forces of evil in a positive light? And, okay, I've only played Magic a few times, so does it? I mean, do, does it portray the forces of evil positively? I mean, I'm aware of the game and others of its ilk and how they're held in some suspicion, but that that question actually took me by surprise. Um, I, I guess I could, I
2: could see how uh, someone could draw that conclusion. I don't think that it necessarily represents evil in a positive light as much as it declines to make moral judgments about what is evil. Um, for those who are not familiar with the game, the the cards are divided into into five colors, uh, and each color represents certain ideas and types of magical spells that can be cast. Um, And specifically, the the color black is associated with death, um, unrestrained power, and ambition. Mm -hmm. And so often, you know, somebody playing a black deck could be seen as supporting these ideas that ambition, uh, forget the consequences, and necromancy and everything is good, but the game itself doesn't say these things are evil. I mean, they often are evil, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily is like you could say, well, necromancy, that's obviously bad, but that's also the same domain as resurrection. You know, Oh, somebody was dead and we brought them back to life. Is that evil? Well, if they come back as a shambling corpse, yes. Uh, (laughs) So I think that it, it, for the most part, it just declines to say, this is evil and that's good. It just presents it to you and lets you draw your own conclusions. And a lot of it depends on exactly what you mean by the forces of evil. I mean, if we're dealing with people who think that the, the phrase you find in some versions of the Bible, the appearance of evil, means things that resemble something I don't like, you're not likely to have a productive conversation with that person
0: yeah i i actually have to jump in because it's it's funny when james even mentioned the idea of doing a podcast like theoretically i had a feeling that this verse would come up somewhere along the lines and so i did a lot of research into the appearance of evil and it's it's really an interesting turn of phrase and really only grounded in one particular translation and the most reliable contemporary translations encourage you to flee from every evil or every kind of evil appearance in that translation had the sense of when evil appears something that isn't really evil but might be mistaken to be evil based on judgments of appearance and i i have a problem with the misapplication of this verse because it is so often used to condemn perfectly innocent things because some hypothetical person could mistake what you were doing for something that is evil? Mm-hmm. Well, how many of us,
1: when we were used, there were certain programs, specifically cartoons, that we were not allowed to watch in our Christian <laughs> households because there was magic in them.
2: Yeah, Smurfs were were the forbidden one for me.
0: I was not allowed to watch Smurfs. I got uh, looked at uh, a sconce. He man, fam- He man was one that I got looked at a sconce for, for, and I couldn't figure out what they m- meant when they were telling me, like you know the. The eye of God is watching you. And I'm like, well, shouldn't he be watching the TV show with me? Because it's, it's, you know, it's really good. Cool. Yeah. No, I I, mean,
1: I can remember thinking like the silly magician orco dude. And that's what you're there's a muscular man in a fur loincloth and a laughing skull head. And the magic is the issue.
2: Yeah. Well, I thought it was kind of ironic. Nobody ever objected to the d d cartoon with me. Only Smurfs.
0: Yeah. I guess they figured <laughs> that 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 was just one and the same. Like, well, of course the game is evil. Therefore, don't watch the cartoon because that will teach you well, how no. to do real magic.
2: Nobody objected to the car. I, I watched the cartoon like, several times. My parents never said anything about the D and D cartoon.
0: That is so weird.
2: I was only hmm. forbidden to watch Smurfs.
0: That's so maybe I think because... that it,
2: it probably wasn't actually the magic that my mom had a problem with.
0: I'm guessing it was the song. Oh! Oh no! Oh! Now that's in my head. Why? Oh God! No! No! Yeah. Wait! Actually, oh. I think
1: she made the right call.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm going to back uh, her up I, on this. Psych- <laughs> psychic damage is real, and I didn't know.
2: You didn't soak that one, huh? Uh, too bad. Uh, this is Mike. Well, I'll be
0: joining you for the rest of Geek Arms Podcast.
1: No, go watch some of the snorkels. You'll be fine. <laughs>
0: Off-brand Smurfs. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, we could probably spend an entire episode once again breaking down all of the biblical prohibitions against sorcery and magic. uh, And illustrating why they don't apply to fantasy fiction. But uh, Saving the Game, as we mentioned earlier, has already covered that ground. Or if you'd rather read it, there's a somewhat outdated, frequently asked questions list at the Christian Gamers Guild about D&D. And uh, a lot of the same questions are asked and answered about magic as are they are for D and D. And if you're interested in having a more interactive conversation, you're welcome to join the Christian Gamers Guild. It's open to everybody. Uh, that's Christian-Gamers-Guild.org, and there's a, a join link in the main menu. Uh, and that's just an email discussion list. Um, everybody's welcome. There's no particular requirements to join other than don't come on there trying to sell something and don't come on there trying to convert us all to Islam. And yes, that has happened. We're not entirely certain why someone thought that was a good idea. But there's... I think with Magic in particular and games that are similar to it, there's uh, a couple of other things that are of greater import to me than the imagery and the the theme. Um, I can see how... It, Somebody might object to the theme, and you know if that's where your the check in your spirit is, you should obey that. God might be working on you for something else. Just don't confuse what God is telling you not to do with what God is telling everybody not to do. Those are two different things. Great. Right. But there was a a little bit of a when I was reading this summary of the question, I wasn't certain if the the church leader and parent were the same person or different people.
0: I don't. I think, think they're it really... the same person.
2: Okay, If someone is still under their parents' authority If you're living at home If, if you're a minor, obey your parents yeah. I mean, it's not worth Creating problems at home uh, Creating rebellion To play a stupid card game I mean, you can find other things to do I like magic a lot I'm not going to get in a fight with my parents over it And I'm 44 years old um, Same with a second, lot of
0: things that I do Yeah, same Yeah.
2: Um, the second thing is Magic and games like it can be addictive and expensive. Um,
0: By design.
2: Right. Uh, I mean, they're, it's a collectible card game and they're, they're trying Mm. to uh, prompt you to buy lots and lots of more pieces of cardboard.
0: Yeah. With the trigger Um, of, of random rewards. Yes, Man, that's, that's kind of a tricky section of the brain, really.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's another thing that we could go into for probably an entire oh. episode.
1: Wow, Magic Card the first loot boxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh,
2: and so if you're if you're feeling like, hey, you know, I'm spending a lot of time and money on this thing. Um, pay attention to that, because I had a problem early on. I spent way too much on Magic Cards, ironically, because I was trying to save the money that I was spending on video games in the student center at school huh. <laughs> that did not work out for me. <laughs> uh, and it, it can be an expensive hobby and it, it can, it does prompt you to, to keep buying more and more cards. So if that's a problem for you, back away from it. But uh, by and large, I don't think that it's not presenting the ev- the forces of evil in a positive light. I don't think that that's, that's really an issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're free to disagree with me. The, the other thing that, the reason I asked if this was a church leader and parent or a church leader And also a parent was because there are some churches in which I think the ministers meddle in people's lives a little bit more than they really should. Um, Yeah. I had a particular pastor who he had a problem. He personally uh, had become obsessed with certain kinds of secular music. Um, And he recognized, hey, this is a problem in my life. It's coming between me and God. I need to. You know, break my drumsticks, throw it away, throw out all all my albums because this is a problem for me. Well, he then extended that into this is a problem for everybody. And, you know, he was forbidding me from listening to music that he didn't care for. And the really ironic thing was the music I was listening to was still Christian music. Huh. It was just this is reminding me too much of something that I had a problem with. Therefore, you are not allowed Mm -hmm. to do it. And so I think that sometimes some ministers overreach and I'm not going to say if your pastor says you shouldn't play magic, you shouldn't play magic. I think that's that's a step too far. Agreed. You should definitely listen to your pastor because they may be seeing something in your life that is troublesome. Give them a listen. Understand where they're coming from, but don't let them control you to that
0: level. Yeah, I think that we could do an entire episode on that sort of thing if it hadn't been done so well with so many other places. And maybe we'll, we'll you know keep asking questions and maybe we'll, we'll revisit this. But thank you very much, Brian
1: mm-hmm and thank you listener for the soapboxy there <laughs> it's all right I was gonna say, and thank you listener for the fantastic question and everyone follow his example if you have something you're curious about let us know
0: and even if it's i, I know how x y and z answered it what is your take we're happy to share our takes
1: mm-hmm. well gentlemen are we ready to move on to the next film in our film club
2: series past ready i think i agree <laughs>
1: So this will be the second movie in our Historical Film Club series. And today we are looking at the 1993 version of The Three Musketeers uh, brought to us by the good people at Disney. It stars Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, Chris O'Donnell, Oliver Platt, Tim Curry, Rebecca de Mornay. This was a movie that when we were discussing which Three Musketeers we wanted to do, there's a lot of them out there.
0: A lot more than I had realized.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I think uh, Three Musketeers has probably been adapted to film more time than any other
0: book that I can think of. I went through the list of them. It goes all the way back to nineteen oh three. Wow. We don't yeah, we don't have any film that exists from that one. We have we have notes and reference, but there's on YouTube you can watch the nineteen thirteen silent version. Yeah, nineteen thirteen silent were Three silent
2: versions. Silent
0: versions. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Some were released as shorts, others as as a as complete films, like maybe a part one, part two. But th- th- you know, it's one of those things. And we said, "Why this film?" It's not so much, "Well, why this film?" Which version? Yeah, of the Three Musketeers, <laughs> because there are so many, so many versions. And I guess the question, "Why the Three Musketeers?" Okay. The wonderful thing is that there's so many good versions. I mean, there's the
1: Brian. I think you're partial to the 1948 version with Gene Kelly and Vincent Price. Yep, which I that's my favorite. I have not seen that one yet, and I'm assuming that Vincent Price is playing Cardinal Richelieu.
2: I think so. I really want to see that. It's been a while since I saw it. The only thing I really remember about it is they got the yellow horse right. That was hilarious, (laughs) and Gene Kelly can jump. Wow, like you would not believe. Cool. Uh, like, he's got, like, a seriously, a five-foot vertical. It's amazing. Really?
1: Yeah, I got to check this out. Um, I have a lot of love uh, for the 1973 one with Michael York as D'Artagnan, Oliver Reed, who I think is one of my favorite actors. He is, does a fantastic job as Athos, and Charlton Heston as Cardinal Richelieu for some reason. Huh. Uh, yeah, and, you know, then there's the Hollywood cash grab slash action movie that came out in 2001 that Brian and I will never speak of again. (laughs) Spider-Man of the 17th century? I remember we walked into that movie theater, you and I, high hopes and expectations, and we just (laughs) trudged out all our hopes and dreams, dashed to the floor. Yes, that was bad. I remember we went to go eat afterwards and we're just sitting there like, well, the the ladder fight scene was kind of cool and that was all (laughs) the praise we had for it. Wow. Yeah, moving on.
0: All right. So with with the Three Musketeers having been made so many times, uh, I guess, what is it about the tale itself? Not necessarily this incarnation, but what about the Three Musketeers makes it so memorable in any of its incarnations?
2: Well, if you look at the book, it's got pieces of just about any kind of story you want to tell smashed into it. I mean, Mm -hmm. war movie, sure. Romance, plenty of that buddy cop story check you know fencing fighting torture revenge giants uh, I, I might be thinking of something else well
1: the one we watched does have an ogre or kind of something similarly <laughs>
2: ugly oh ugly <laughs> and in the novel uh porthos is actually described as a giant i'm not sure why they got oliver platt to play him but you know <laughs> and actually what's funny is oliver platt was actually supposed to play porthos in an And another Three Musketeers movie with uh, Johnny Depp.
1: Yeah, didn't I read that there were like three different studios all trying to get a Three Musketeer movie made at the same time?
2: Yeah, and Oliver Platt was tapped as Porthos for two of them.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh, now that is a story I want to (laughs) read.
2: I think it's in the Wikipedia page. Mm. It's just that
1: everyone was jumping onto the success of robin hood prince of thieves i'm like let's make another period movie with another fantastic song and that's gonna you know be all over the airwaves and who can we get for it the fact that
0: brian adams did the the (laughs) rock ballad at the end
1: not just brian adams it was brian adams sting
0: and
2: um oh yeah uh who was the third i always forget
0: it was uh rod stewart
2: Rod Stewart, yes.
0: You know that somebody sitting in the in the boardroom is like, Yes, 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 yes. This is absolutely what's going to put I mean... us on the top. Green like that. Green like that, right, that right now.
1: Let's put we're them in a so medieval feast money. hall singing about love with we're... witches around them. Oh, God, bro, get my money printing machine. Oh. We're, we're going to make so much money.
2: And then they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> on YouTube? the official music video of All for Love has 96 million views.
2: Which translates out to a buck eighty-five in advertising revenue. <laughs> <sighs> what I think is, is strange is we've got like 20, 30 versions of The Three Musketeers, but I can only think of two of the other D'Artagnan romances. Uh, well, actually, only one of them, but it was made twice with Man in the Iron Mask. Right. Um, I think there were some... A couple of productions of uh, twenty years later and ten years after, but I mean, there's like, if I remember right, there's six books mm-hmm. in this in a oh, cycle. There is the movie, and we only get the first one and the last one.
1: <laughs> well, there is the the one with uh, Michael York was so popular they made a sequel to it called The Four Musketeers.
2: Yeah, and I think that one is uh, the story from twenty years twenty years after. Yeah, yeah. And I think wasn't that the one where they actually waited twenty years before they made it so everybody was the right age?
0: Oh my gosh, that's commitment Yeah That's a risk
1: The Four Musketeers, Milady's Revenge Came out in 1974
2: And the three. Okay, so no, that was immediately followed yeah. in 1973 I know there was one where they actually They got the cast back together 20 years later
0: That was Star Wars <laughs> They did that too
1: I do remember that there was a It's probably not the same thing but in my research, I found there was a mini series called *La Femme Musketeer* about D'Artagnan's daughter, and oh, D'Artagnan. I that. D'Artagnan is played again by Michael York.
2: Yeah, that that has was a little my bit interest. Like, uh, oh, now I can't even remember what it was like. There was some, there was something else that was uh, similar to that, where you got the daughter of the character, and then the same actor was playing. Mm-hmm. The father yeah.
1: still. I, I saw the poster for it and I saw the trailer for Le Femme Muscat. I'm like, oh, wow, this was probably awful.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a shame. All right. So um, why did we pick this version of the film? Um, and one of the reasons why we landed on 1993 is we've just done The Lion in Winter and we wanted to pick something from a different Uh, We want to pick a version from a different age of movie making. And so we all kind of like I hadn't seen it in years. I barely remembered it. But I I know that we all just kind of honed in on the 93 version. And correct me if I'm wrong. We we kind of picked it for for more or less nostalgic reasons. Is that oh, yeah. And laziness,
2: because I've seen (laughs) this movie so many times that if I had just neglected to watch it again, I could still talk for ages about it. i have seen it so many times. Same
1: here. And I think that's you know, laziness, but that's because of the nostalgia, because of the enjoyment. It's just a fun movie. The rewatchability factor on it is so high. And when I rewatched it for the purposes of this episode, I found myself still chuckling. The acting is still solid in many places. And there were a couple of things that I missed from when I had watched it as a teenager, some things that now as adult that make me really shake my head. (laughs) We'll get to more of that later. But um, it was one that I was more than happy to watch again, and I was glad that we were doing this
0: one. See, it's funny because my rewatch of the film was, you know, I didn't didn't think that it was a particularly like – Oh wow, this is a great movie. Uh, it, it, I mean, it isn't. I mean, it's a fun no, movie. Yeah. It was a, it was a, you know, pop it in and you watch, and you know, it's it's a fun story. Uh, but in my rewatch, what really, what really kind of was coming to the forefront of my mind is that period pieces are never as much about the period as they are about the period in which they're made, and. Mm. That is especially true of this movie. It just really drips with early 90s feel. Oh, it is so 90s. Yes. We've got Charlie Sheen playing the role of Charlie Sheen in a blue tunic. (laughs) Uh, it, It has that that ending rock ballad by that one guy who did that rock ballad in that other early 90s not very historically <laughs> historical film and it and if you don't know who i'm talking about it's that guy that everything he did he did it for you yes um,
1: it was definitely a labor of love for everyone involved it was all for one and all for love <laughs> and in a quick reference to that other early 90s very historically historic film i think that they got the same voice and accent coach for the Three Musketeers as they did for the other movie.
0: Okay, I wasn't going to do this, but it, here we are, James. But you know you want to. You know you I want al- to. I always want to. The fact that when when whenever we're in France and all, like, all of, save one accent is English, it always mm. just kind of makes me, oh my gosh, oh, I love you, Picard. Anyway, let's... let's <laughs> okay so i mean it's it's just a fun it's a fun romp of a 90s film and and we're gonna appreciate it through that lens and uh, i guess since we are talking about historical pieces big air quotes around historical when we're talking about historical fiction you're never watching a documentary please do not learn your history from hollywood movies you will make <laughs> the ghost of Herodotus very, very sad and maybe the Queen of America very, very happy. <laughs> now, there is some remote connection to history. The, the Musketeers were real people. I mean, not the characters in this were real people. There was, there was uh, some inspiration. Uh, Dumas was uh, the original writer of, of the serial series, The Three Musketeers. Found some reference to a fictionalized representation of a real historical D'Artagnan, and and in, in was very much focused on him in particular. And he wrote this swashbuckling adventure. And well,
2: the, he wrote it as the Three Musketeers is written as though it's the memoirs of the Comte de Fer, who is Athos. So he was pretending that this was a discovered manuscript, right. which is interesting.
0: Which I just think that's a great way of of writing fiction, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, these like who were the musketeers? The the musketeers were an elite section of the French military that were effective uh, on as cavalry as well as on foot, and they had expertise in. Hold your breath for a minute here. You'll never see this one coming. The (laughs) musket hence their musketeers are, are you this sure because mike they're...
1: because we we really don't see a whole lot of musket use in the
0: movie uh, are you sure they're they're good at muskets actually uh, i did find another note it's actually because they just were very strong in scent and so they were just the musketeers. no i'm not <laughs> doing that uh, well they, you know
2: they even though they've got the muskets there's still a uh a melee troop, yeah. but they do get to keep their extra point of movement when you upgrade them to rifle.
0: <laughs> <out>. <laughs> this is me pretending you know. I get that
2: joke. Yeah, okay. that's a civilization yeah. three joke. for
1: Okay. <laughs> and one thing that the books do get right in the movie is that they did serve as the king's guard when outside the palace. I mean, they're called right. the king's musketeers for a reason. And in fact, there was an expanded group of them that were assigned to the historical Cardinal Richelieu. I don't really think there was ever anything like the Cardinal's guards.
2: Um, They were the Cardinal's musketeers, but that
0: would have been confusing if they'd called them that in the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The book has a few more historical touch points, but exists in a spectrum that is more fiction than fantasy. It was set in a real place, in a real time, (laughs) and uses a few real names to serially tell a series of stories.
2: I think you meant uh, more fiction than history not more Did than I say more history
0: than fiction? You said more <laughs> you said more
2: fiction than fantasy. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, that much is true. We don't yeah. see any magic use. I mean, just barely, but, you know.
1: Well, okay. we also have, yes. we have to look about when this was written. Uh, Dumas wrote The Three Musketeers in the mid-19th century, the mid-1800s. And that was like right smack dab in the time of romanticism in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so they were looking at this time period very much through rose-colored glasses. And tales of chivalry and courtesy and romance were abounding in everything that was being made and this is really no different
2: there wasn't really a whole lot of chivalry and courtesy though in the book
1: no not really so they,
2: they were all pretty much scoundrels yes but you know that Dumas was trying to make a point about that he was he was criticizing the uh, the mechanisms of power in his own time by pointing pointing at a fictitious the fictitious polit- politics of the 1600s and like Mike said earlier, Historical fiction is more about the time that it's written than the time that it's portraying. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, in this case, we're, for, with the movie, we're doing that twice. Which
0: just makes me feel good.
2: <laughs> Meta-narratives.
0: All right. So the film itself. Is there anything that stood out to us in the film craft?
2: I was impressed with the cinematography. Uh, it's it's solid. The actual camera operation gets a little wobbly, uh, with especially like when they're pushing in on somebody. It's like, oh, we didn't quite go in a straight line. Um, but there was this... It caught my eye early uh, because it's in the first scene of the... Well, the second scene of the movie. When you've got this rack focus between uh, Gerard, the, the fop, when he kneels down, he drops out of frame to reveal his brother's writing to, su- writing to support, and we... We rack the focus back to the the horseman. I was, uh, I was really impressed with that. I was like, oh, that's that's a good shot. And you know, for a Disney movie, you don't get those that kind of uh, inventiveness very often. And as a side note, I hadn't realized it until I looked up. I was looking up the character's name, uh, but Paul McGann played both Gerard and Jussac, the leader of the Cardinals' guards. Uh, well, the leader of the squad that had been sent to apprehend the Inseparables. Oh, mm. that is funny.
1: The fop, the one who is. Uh, <laughs> who is. Who, yeah, who is. Uh, that guy. <laughs> he still cracks me up to this day. This time I watched him <laughs> as older. I'm like, why does he look familiar? Wait a dang second. Google IMDB. Holy
2: crap, it's the eighth doctor. Yeah. Really? Paul McGann, yeah. From the TV movie
0: see i think that that's actually the doctor trying to nudge d'artagnan into becoming a musketeer
2: <laughs> this is my new head cannon
0: i'm down with this yes completely because <laughs> like, he the, never the, actually hurts the,
2: him
1: and the guys that are with him those aren't his brothers they're his companions <laughs> Oh my that's gosh. when he that's when he realizes that, of course, in Dr. Fashion, he doesn't realize at what point in the timeline he's at. And so when he confronts D'Artagnan at the end, he doesn't realize he's done his job. Everything's fixed. He's like, my sister's honor will be avenged. And the entire core of musketeers coming at
0: them. Run. Look, OK, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. OK, <laughs> now we run. Now we run back to the TARDIS. <laughs> Shut the door. Let's go. Yes. No, that was the first time that he met him. And now what he has to do is go back several days to challenge him in that duel. <laughs> ah. And
2: he, he's it got to cross b- himself to show up As the uh, the head of the guards That are trying to arrest the inseparables too
1: You're absolutely right Man he's a busy <laughs> man in this movie
0: <laughs> uh, One of the things I was actually really impressed with Was the stunt coordination Early on in that That second scene or depending on how you count it Third where, where they have that chased sequence Like right yes. after the duel Uh, They took off on horseback, and there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to chases, especially with horses, because you can block out things with vehicles very, you know, I mean, it takes a lot of planning, but now you've introduced uh, an animal and people are getting... Knocked off by falling logs and falling wenches somehow And it's something <laughs> like that that would have had to have been so painstakingly blocked and time, timed it, Especially working with animals I, I was just really impressed mm-hmm. with the whole sequence from, from a technical standpoint yeah. And
1: I had forgotten how much I loved Speaking of chase scenes The one Right after the interrupted execution, where the Musketeers steal the Cardinals' coach.
2: Oh, yes. That's my favorite scene. Same
1: here. I mean, the action, yeah. the humor, it was great to watch when I was younger, but now as an adult, I can appreciate all of the elements that had to go in to make this great moment. The action was fantastic. The humor. What's this? The Cardinals' sacred snack chamber.
2: For a chase, His
0: Excellency recommends this 38 Cabernet. <laughs>
1: You can't have any you're too young you're
0: too young (laughs) and honestly i think this moment for me was was great seeing athos in it Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. here we have somebody who's like the grounded the straight man the the one who's who's always putting the gravity into the situation but even he is like (laughs) yeah this is just a day he's clearly enjoying himself we're in the middle of a chase (laughs)
1: porthos you're right something red something red <laughs> i almost wonder that smile yes. right after
2: that line is just wonderful it made yeah. me
1: wonder if that was ad-libbed
2: <laughs> maybe because
1: the reactions head, were head so genuine yeah the reactions felt genuine and it Go wasn't ahead. until i was an adult when you hear the pop and d'artagnan's things like they're shooting at us no that was the pop of the champagne <laughs> bottle
2: <laughs> i didn't pick that up
1: it's <laughs> me so pops up the foam is still coming out of the the bottle like champagne And this felt like a very, see, whenever I think of the Musketeers, these movies are loved by rapier fighters in the SCA because the Musketeers represent the totality, the combination of the pure idea of the swashbuckler fighting for king and country by day at night with your brothers and sisters in arms, drinking, carousing, all of that good fun. And they're very much swashbuckler ideal and this chasing has got that all over it they've interrupted an execution stolen the cardinals coach drinking his wine on the run just having it straight out of the bottle throwing his coins to the peasants it is the ideal of all of us who pick up a rapier and fight of what we wish we could really and then,
2: do. And then blowing up an
1: army post. Exactly. Considering how much ground this scene covered and how many different scenes it incorporated from the inner city of Paris through the woods, the the shooting, all the horsemen following them through a soldier's camp, dozens and dozens of extras and horses and set pieces and I'm like, wait a minute, why is there suddenly an SCA event in the middle of this movie <laughs> with all of the tents? And everything? I'm, oh, no, wait, why are they going through a soldier's? Oh, no, wait, because they're getting ready for a war with England. Everything just kind of mm-hmm. clicked together, and it looked really good. And once again, there's a reason why this is like our favorite scene in the movie. I mean, I think it holds up to just about any action scene that we see today. You
2: mm-hmm. know, they didn't have a spot where they they jumped the carriage across a stream and it twisted in midair and did a full rotation and landed on its wheels. But well, that's because um, that's
0: because James Bond wasn't driving the coach. Oh, <laughs>
2: I was. <laughs>
1: I was going to say that's because Jason Statham wasn't riding the horse. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right, despite the fact that would also have been a very '90s thing to do. I was going to say something about the lighting. Uh,
2: yes, do I actually wanted to put this in next to the cinematography part, but I forgot. Uh, the lighting in the dungeons I thought because we we just came off of uh lion in winter where the lighting in the dungeons was ridiculous um <laughs> but I thought in this case it was fairly well executed. we didn't have anybody coming in with candles and saying oh that's better
1: thank goodness <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> but we could see everything well but it still looked like it was torch lit it was nice and warm and flickery it was it was still probably a little too high key but you know it's it's Disney and so yeah. I mean anytime
0: you're you're getting Disney murdered dark. by silhouette, uh, murdered in silhouette by torchlight. But we don't care. That sounds like a great yeah. album name. Uh, murdered, in, by, murdered in silhouette by, by torchlight. torchlight. Yes. What's <laughs> going to be the first album available through the Pants and Arrows Distributors? <laughs> right.
2: Produced by Codswalp and Poppycock. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a callback. <laughs> I love it, though.
1: Oh, Speaking of film craft, I wanted to talk to you guys for a moment about some of the sound mixing that we heard or some of the sound effects that we heard in this movie. It seemed that each movie, of course, has its own distinctive sounds uh, which identify it. Like anytime you hear a punch in the Indiana Jones movies, it sounds like a shotgun going off. And yeah. this one seemed like anytime anybody turned dramatically, there was this whoosh, whoosh that went along with it. Like <laughs> turning in a giant cavern just makes this echo, ominous sound. And for some reason, watching it recently, it was just stood out to me more than time I'd watched it before. I'm like, how are they doing this? And why do they keep doing it?
2: <laughs> I hadn't noticed it, but now that you pointed out, I was like, yeah, especially Cardinal Richelieu yeah. because he's got that huge cloak. I mean,
1: I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if we went on like YouTube and found like the making of this and the director's like, actually, that wasn't a sound effect at all. That was all Tim Curry. Anytime Tim Curry turns <laughs> left, the sound happens. It's just natural.
2: And it's really weird. If he turns right, it sounds like a duck. We don't understand and it.
1: God help you if he points at you. <laughs> it was just an interesting choice in the film and didn't take away from it. But I just, you know, I found it to be unique. Something else I wanted to point out was just how beautiful this movie is. the The scenery, uh, the countryside. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. seeing it, I thought, well, of course this is filmed in France, but because it's supposed to be set in France, obviously they can't shoot in France because that's not how things are done.
0: <laughs> Let me guess. It was New Zealand. Uh,
1: <laughs> no, no. They, if they wanted to be set in England, a Eng- lot
2: of mountains in France.
1: <laughs> I was going to say, if they, if they wanted to be set in England or Scotland, they shoot it in New Zealand. If they want it to be in the Middle East, they shoot it in Nevada. And apparently if you want to shoot a scene in France, you go to Austria.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. That's like a rule. Yeah.
2: Well, I think the advantage that they had in Austria was that they could get this uh, renaissance looking skyline without having recognizably modern Paris shapes in it. Because most Mm. of what we see in the Paris skyline wouldn't have existed in the 1600s. But nobody knows what Vienna looks like.
0: Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Eiffel Tower wasn't there in the 1600s? I think it was the late 1600s. You this know. design that I, this, this set that I'm working on for a new production of Les Mis is going to go really well, weird then. They just started, it was
1: called the If Tower. <laughs> oh my gosh. But uh beautiful countryside, period manor houses and some nice castles we see throughout the movie lend a believability to the movie, you know, more than just like a backdrop or digital castles and a, mm-hmm. you know, throwing a, Some dirt in the color brown over everything, which we'll get to the color brown (laughs) later. Actually, you know, we're going to get to it right now because, you know, I was going to bring this up (laughs) at some point, but just do it. I'm going to, you know, a lot of the costuming in this movie doesn't look half bad. They got, you know, 17th century France right for the most part, especially when we come to see some of the nobility very bright colors, very outlandish at times. And yeah, great, wonderful, good. It's where we get like the middle and lower class that things start to once again go wrong. It seems like they once again cracked open that costuming book, The Fifty Shades of Brown. Uh, (laughs)
0: They did have a problem with rolling brownouts. No.
1: (laughs) Two (laughs) scenes stood out to me.
0: You know, it's L.A. Yeah.
1: (laughs) One after D'Artagnan throws the coins to the people at the carriage chase. We see... Of course, several people gathered together to get the coins. I counted 11 shades of brown in that scene. Next, this happens earlier in the movie, at the fight of the ruins where we the interrupted duel, the cardinal's guards, only a fool would try to arrest us twice in one day. You're under arrest. Fool. (laughs) In that scene, I counted 14 shades of brown. All of them were on Athos, Porthos, Aramis, and
0: D'Artagnan. I'm actually just impressed you counted.
2: (laughs) He's got a colorimeter out there and he's <laughs> sampling from the screen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I realize well, no
1: this was done on purpose. This is so you can tell the good guys from the bad for the young viewers. good guys wear brown and blue bad guys wear black and red. They're just simple actually makes they're sense. just simplifying it. It's just oh. it's the newest version of the bad guys wear the black hat good guys wear the white hat. Which all the musketeers at one point have whitish swashbuckling hats. Mm -hmm. Uh, So
2: I got to admit, D'Artagnan's hat is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it is. (laughs) And I will admit for many years in the SCA when I would go later period, I had a very similar hat with the white feather along with a pheasant feather coming out of it. And I will also say I looked fantastic.
0: (laughs) I find that not hard to imagine. (laughs) I mean, you put one of those hats on and, oh, yeah. you know, it, it, you just drip debonair. And uh, speaking of
1: fighting, Mike, I feel like we can't go any further without talking about the rapier combat for a few minutes. Who am I kidding? It's going to be mean, several minutes.
0: I mean, that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, we didn't get
1: dressed up for nothing. Mm-hmm. So I was happy when I read that all of the main actors went through like a six week course on fencing and riding, except for Charlie Sheen who was busy shooting hot shots part due at that time. And it shows because when you look at his fights, yeah, he does a little bit of sword fighting, a stab here and there, but then he just punches his opponent or gives him an elbow to the face. Just as much I mean, I as actually- he fences.
0: Yeah, I actually think that's a solid call from from a stunt coordination perspective, mm-hmm. because until until they called it out, I didn't notice that he was the one contributing most of the the fisticuffs and, and and punches and things, because you have all of the rest of the fencing just kind of sprinkled throughout the film and spread out among the other actors who who weren't busy filming failures to show up for their for their training. <laughs> what I also found interesting was that.
1: uh The Kiefer Sutherland didn't need that much training. He was already an accomplished horseman before this movie came out. I thought I liked that about him. And I think I have a very romantic view of horses and horseback riding. I've only done it a few times in my life. And it's one of those things that I always wished I had done more of. Like I've even been thrown off of a horse. So when I read that he was already an accomplished equestrian, I liked that about him and made me like him a little more. But back to the fighting. Um... Watching this as a 15-year-old, I thought the fight scenes were dynamic and they were fast-paced and visually stunning, partially because I had no frame of reference for what a (laughs) fight with a rapier was supposed to look like.
0: Like most Hollywood film viewers. That's
1: fine. Watching them as a 42-year-old with 17-plus years of rapier fighting and study under my belt, having read Capifero, Gigante, Fabris, and more, I felt different. I mean,
0: here's the thing
1: again— (laughs) When I saw them fighting with rapiers, but using them as sabers, which was most of the time, I cringed inside every single moment. And this is the prime example of Hollywood stunt sword fighting. Big actions, lots of blade on blade contact, attacks that look powerful and strong and sweeping and wonderful on the camera, but in a real fight will in fact get you killed many times
0: over. And you know, I think that we come we come down on this in different places because when I'm looking at this film, I'm going in expecting to see a Hollywood fight, and I, I I'm going in watching the rapiers to see the rapiers do things that rapiers were not meant to do. So it I thought that it was you know fine example of 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 choreographed fighting. It it didn't wow me as a choreographed fight, with the exception of of one scene, which we'll get to a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But it was. They did their job in terms of make this look elaborate and exciting on screen.
2: And it was intelligible. Um, I mean, I I don't know anything about sword work very much, but I could tell who's winning this fight, what's what's happening. Uh, So in that regard, it's, it's successful, regardless of how much these people would probably get skewered trying to do those things.
1: And I will say, I looked at this with two minds. One of them was the rapier fighter mind. I can't. I can't really turn him off. Not anymore. Mm -hmm. I I have the burden of knowledge now. (laughs) But quieting him for a bit, I found that I still really enjoyed the fight scenes. They were athletic. They were well done, beautifully choreographed. And I can enjoy the art form. And of course, the reason that they look so good is that once again, they were choreographed by our favorite movie sword fighter, Bob Anderson, who I will point out cameos in this movie as the king's fencing instructor
0: that i did not really yes huh no i actually was impressed with that scene because the king looked like he had absolutely no idea what he was doing (laughs) and the instructor looked like he was actually trying to teach him what on earth he was supposed to be doing i had no idea that that was bob anderson yep so
2: so he was probably actually just teaching him what he should be doing So I'm, we're going we're to skip your training. We're just going to do that training, you know, all the yes, day.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, I'm the king. Shouldn't I be learning sword fighting with everyone else? No, no, you shouldn't. No, you're
0: going to spend six weeks punching Tim Curry so that you can, you can be ready.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> it did look like that he was just giving his lesson there and no one else knew it. And then Bob Anderson went to the director and was, OK, start the cameras now.
2: <laughs> well, you know, you've got your rapier brain and I've got kind of a physics brain because – the thing that really tossed me out of enjoying this, this cool action scene was the cannonballs. So I'm like, okay, if you've got a cannonball that falls 8, 10 feet away from these guys on, the, on their horses, no, I'm sorry, shrapnel, those guys are dead.
1: Do cannonballs usually hit the ground first, smolder
2: for a second, and then blow up? Uh, it depends on whether or not they've been fused properly. Okay. The that idea is you want it to explode too. a couple of feet above the ground so that the shrapnel gets... Uh, as wide a dispersal as possible, but it's really, really difficult when you've got a black powder fuse to get the timing quite right. So really so and it's it also, not uncommon for it about, to hit the ground at about the 45
1: minute mark. In all reality, these guys should have been a fine red and blue veneer.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> Although, again let's talk about the horses because they're dealing with animals on this set and the fact that they were able to wrangle this whole scene into something Mm -hmm. intelligible while you had explosions around horses which this is a little little known equestrian fact and this is this is something that geek at arms listeners prepare yourselves horses don't like explosions (laughs) i know that's a surprise yeah, or, you know what, I, I would really like to see the short list of animals that do, like, explosions, because this is, <laughs> kind of scares them. They're hard to work with like that. Uh,
2: yeah, the definitely, the whoever was training and, and managing those horses did a fantastic job, because to get them to all run in the same direction, with what I presume, I think you mentioned that Kiefer Sutherland was an uh, accomplished equestrian, but the other three probably not. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were able to keep their seat when – of course, we don't know, because the sound effect was added later. It's a very real possibility that if you've got blinders on the horses, which I don't recall if they did or not, um, these explosions are actually pretty quiet, uh, and they're mostly just smoke. So, it's a possibility that uh, the horses didn't even know that there were explosions going on.
0: Oh, they knew. I did the research. <laughs> oh, yeah. Kiefer Sutherland commented on that so
2: (laughs) well then good on those uh, what what do you call all around really Mm -hmm. the people that manage the horses I can't think of the word now
0: the handlers the wranglers the trainers and and the actors really see this is why I like medieval times so much not because of the fighting but because it's an amazing equestrian show but (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it for what it is Mm -hmm. Well,
1: if there is nothing else we want to talk about for film craft, uh, shall we jump into these interesting characters?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, uh, well, I guess the, the obvious place to start is D'Artagnan, since he's the hero of the movie in mm-hmm. spite of its title. I'll be honest, I don't think that O'Donnell really stood out as an actor against the other three. I mean, he doesn't really add anything to the film other, other than a pretty face. And
1: <laughs> I think you could say that about Somebody's... most of his movies.
0: <laughs> Again, this is a yeah. this is a great '90s movie. Uh, this is this is when uh, O'Donnell's career was going strong. Yeah. And well, the trouble done...
2: is that they put him in a movie with Kiefer Sutherland. And every woman I've ever asked about this movie has said, "Oh, I was so in love with Kiefer."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, I mean, because so he, he wasn't was amazing. even doing that job. Yeah, in the <laughs> '90s, any uh, young man who watches like, "Oh man, D'Artagnan's awesome. I want to be like that." But now that we've gotten older, like, I'd rather be Athos or Porthos. Nobody wants to be Charlie Sheen.
2: Well, I wouldn't mind being Aramis, but not Sheen. Not Charlie Sheen. No,
0: no, no. Well, come on in a minute. Okay, one thing I will say about D'Artagnan, though, is, and actually this is actually more about um, O'Donnell, is that I was really impressed with what he did, um, not so much with the character, but how he handled himself physically in the role. Like, uh, he received the same stage fencing training as everyone else did. And I really feel like he rose to the it rose to the challenge to look like somebody who was a really good upstart, Mm. like somebody who had natural talent because he he just handled his stunt coordination Mm -hmm. scenes, I thought, particularly well, especially in that kind of opening duel.
1: And that's how D'Artagnan is portrayed in a lot of media. You have these musketeers who are seasoned fighters. They're veterans. They're really, really good. Up comes D'Artagnan, who is also really good, but he's almost like a phenom. He is just a natural at this and just mm-hmm. rises to the ranks quickly by the strength of his skill.
2: Well, he he rises to the ranks to a certain point, and then he hits a ceiling that frustrates him and drives the plot of the second book. <laughs> but that's not in this movie. <laughs>
1: I can remember watching this movie thinking like, well, here's the pretty boy, bushy blonde hair, white hat, golden rapier. And at least he's not going to lose his
0: shirt. No, there it is. It's gone. (laughs) It was in the contract. Like they (laughs) they spent writers spending six weeks trying to figure out how they were going to get a shirt off. It was the reason why he took the film. (laughs) And the reason why the Batman costumes turned out the way they did later on. Wait, no, I don't I'm just, I'm making this up. I'm making. And I just
1: want to say, I stand by what I said about him. He was in two separate Batman movies with two different Batmans. And he's still the least talked about thing in those movies.
0: <laughs> yep. That's what's going to happen next time. The Batman film club. I, I don't know. Hold on. Don't internet quote me on that. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Athos while we're talking about. I would love this film. to talk about Athos. Absolutely, I thought Keith R. Sutherland's performance was really something this movie needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 1993 version of the Three Musketeers is such a light-hearted, swashbuckling adventure with enough comic relief that it's it, it has enough. Um, Most other characters really lean into that lightheartedness in one sense or another. And so we needed one character who really seemed to take this seriously in order for the audience, or at least me, to have any sort of buy-in. And that character really could not be Mm D'Artagnan because he was too much the, I have too much inexperience and that inexperience and young idiocy is driving me into the plot. Um, (laughs) and, And it seemed like Athos was really very much in the moment Mm -hmm. and he took the events around him with the gravity that was necessary and you
1: bring up there's a lot of humor in this movie and athos has got humor as well but it's always in context of the character which he's playing he's never making any Mm. outlandish jokes i mean he's got jokes i love that scene where he tells porthos we're in the middle of a chase and then the carriage ends he opens the carriage door, gentlemen this is the end of your ride i hope you've enjoyed it completely deadpan. Very funny, yeah. mm-hmm. perfectly believable. And then after he and D'Artagnan are drinking and he tells us the sad story of his wife and like the the bit of a, a fool that he is, Porthos falls through the table, Athos smiles at him and punches him in the face. That cracked <laughs> me up. And it is perfectly in yeah. keeping with the character.
0: And I think that's mm-hmm. important to how the humor worked, is that it worked for the character. Mm-hmm. And he gave that great chuckle. This movie's got a
1: couple of characters who just give great chuckles.
2: Yeah. Mike said something uh, when we were discussing uh, earlier in the week that I don't even remember exactly what you said, but my reply was that Athos was the only one, well, Kiefer Sutherland was the only one who seemed like a real person. Yeah, All the others are kind of stylized. You know, Porthos is the clown. Aramis is the priest, you know, like an archetype almost. Um, but Athos is the one who's, who seems like this is a guy in France in the 1600s. He's a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the only other character who really, who really achieves that is, uh, uh, Anne played by Gabrielle Anwar, uh, who I spent the entire movie trying to figure out why do I recognize her? And why didn't I recognize her any the other time to watch this movie? And I finally realized when I saw her name in the credits, oh, that was Fiona from Burn Notice.
0: <laughs>
2: oh, I have not seen that. <laughs> Good show. I like it a lot. But uh, Athos has, he's also got the 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 backstory, um, which you sense in the movie, but they don't ever really explore it very much. I mean, we get the, the payoff of his relationship with uh, Milady De Winter, but... The story that he tells to D'Artagnan, and we realize, of course, it's pretty obvious in the in the moment if you're you know how stories work that he's who he's talking about. Um, but it's supposed to be a big reveal at the end, anyway. And you realize this guy was a nobleman; he left his estates. There's got to be some kind of consequences to that. Um, we don't know, you know, what does his family think about this or anything. But if you know a little bit about the story, there, there's a, there's a lot of freight in that scene and in his story, and uh, the fatherly relationship he has with D'Artagnan. For stages, uh eventually he adopts a young man named Raoul and has a, a very similar relationship, raises him as a son. And so knowing all of that about Athos and seeing that Kiefer Sutherland brought that background mm-hmm. and that destiny into this part in a script that really didn't have it in there, I thought was just fantastic.
1: And I want to encourage uh, our listeners and even you guys, if you haven't seen it yet, to check out the more recent BBC series, The Musketeers. Came out in 2014, and it explores Athos's past with Milady the Winter and with the consequences of giving up his title and his estates. And because it is a series, it can really spend more time on those character moments. Yeah. I thought it was very well done. It ran for about three seasons, and as a highlight, it has Cardinal Richelieu played by Peter Capaldi, which is reason to see it alone.
2: Oh, wow. I had, I wasn't familiar with that one. I didn't know it existed. I'll definitely look for uh, it,
1: it. I was able to watch all three seasons on Prime, and I believe it's still on there to view for free. It's worth a watch. It's a great miniseries, and um, it really delves more into the Musketeer organization, what's going on politically in France, and uh, does it have its flaws? Of course, every series does, but it really entertained me, and I think I went through all 30 episodes in just like a matter of weeks. So uh, please do check it out.
0: Let's talk about Porthos then. Oh, yeah. Wait, you mean (laughs) Porthos the pirate? I mean, Porthos, the the guy who who met the Queen of America and the Tsarina of Japan. I mean, wow. All those guys around. Doesn't (laughs) he just? Where do you think he got the bola?
1: (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry.
2: yeah he's the furthest away from the the novel's template. I mean I, I don't know where the pirate thing came from. He's supposed to be a baron. He's supposed to be like over six feet tall like we got Oliver Platt in the I don't <laughs> I don't know exactly where they where this idea of Porthos came from, but he is definitely entertaining. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it was from the same place when they were saying, you know, we really need to get Brian Adams to make a real (laughs) cash cow of a song. That same same board said, no, this is Porthos. But it doesn't look like this is Porthos. And the fact
2: that two different productions said that is just amazing.
0: You
1: know, it's almost become a trope. Let's take the character that's larger than life and boisterous and let's make him the source of much of the comedy.
2: Yeah, and I don't have a problem with that because Porthos in the in the novel was the source of a lot of the comedy mm-hmm. too. Uh, most of it was because he was a little bit dim and very earnest. Uh, he was actually like the 17th century version of Lenny from of mice, of mice and men. But I, I kind of liked the, the the walking arsenal that he was. Yes, uh, oh, yeah,
0: but that the was kind of cool.
2: Spend any time pointing it out is just a, a fact of his existence. I thought I was entertained. Oh my
1: it's a it's a Swiss bag of holding. <laughs> but I decided to actually look up the weapons that he, he pulls out of there throughout the movie, and I knew all of them were real. I was just curious if they were period appropriate. And mm-hmm. the first one we see is the pairing dagger that the two blades snap out from the middle blade. And that is actually called a trident dagger. And it is is very real. I've seen
0: one of those in a museum. There is a beautiful one
1: that is from Germany that is made in the early 16th century. And so they were absolutely round. They weren't common, but they were there. And they were very effective at binding a blade. I doubt it could break a blade so effectively as it does in the movie. But then again, they've been whacking and hacking away at each other with these blades. So probably there was a flaw in the steel itself and in the heat treatment. And so it wasn't that hard to break it. The next one in the same scene, actually, is the bolus. That is a throwing weapon from Patagonia. Absolutely period appropriate. And while they were around in South America at the time, they weren't really known in Europe. But then again, Porthos does get around.
0: I mean, it's proof that he probably had even met the Queen of America. Probably
1: a gift from her with the sash. <laughs> uh, the pistol that we see with the spring-loaded bayonet was also a very real weapon, a very cool weapon. And we start to see more of them in the late 17th, early 18th century. So, you know, he might have gotten one of the first ones. He seems to like his toys. So he probably saw it. He's like, ooh, what's that? Well, well it's he new. was
2: surprised about it. So, I was like, Oh, yeah,
1: I like this. <laughs> And finally, we have the crossbow pistol. Once again, very real, but about a century early.
0: I mean, if that's the worst historical mistake that you're pointing out, then you really, really need to have a sit down conversation about France. (laughs) I know. Well,
1: well, the more I looked into the crossbow pistol, because we see modern ones all the time the more I found like, oh, this one is more of a stretch than all the others combined. Because there were 17th century examples, but they were very rare, almost always made out of metal. And they were usually used for bird hunting target practice because they shot small lead balls instead of bolts. And whatever they shot or what they were made of, they did not have the power to shoot a man in the chest that was four stories up. (laughs) more likely he would have shot it. And if it would have made it to him, it would have just come pink off of his chest and bounced right off.
0: Okay. Aramis. The fact that he was studying to become a priest plays a little differently after the tiger blood interview, (laughs) especially (laughs) after, after the comment, uh, I'm a high priest of Vatican assassin warlock. Yes, I did review the interview just to make sure. (laughs) That was said in jest, even in even in the train wreck of an interview. But in some ways, I also kind of want to splice that into this film. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he kind of becomes that by the end of the the series because he's a assassin. He's definitely doing that Uh, high priest. He was the general of the Jesuits. And that probably also covers warlock.
0: <laughs> oh oh oh, poor Jesuits no, That's the real reason him. why uh, the, the bullet in well, hit him, in
1: the, the, hit him uh, in the cross and didn't kill him. One thing I found interesting, and this is purely on Charlie Sheen, is that for someone who is supposed to have been the personal student slash understudy of a cardinal, he can't get a Bible verse right to save his life.
2: <laughs> well, it was well, lost to sure the translation. How much the, uh, the cardinal was reading the Bible either, yeah. so.
0: What it is, is once you translate the Bible from the original Greek into French, back into English, and then run it through Disney, things happen. That's, yeah. that's just what happens. <laughs> I like, I can see why the
1: cardinal got rid of him. It wasn't that Aramis quit out of ethical reasons. It's just because he was a crappy student.
0: It's like, as it says <laughs> in 2nd like, Hezekiah, spare the rod and spoil the child. Like, I'm pretty sure that's I can right. just imagine Tim Curry going,
1: going I'm letting you go. You are just the worst at this. And I mean... <laughs> The worst, and that's even coming from me. I'm evil, and you're still worse at this than I am.
0: Oh, oh. Shall we? speaking of the cardinal, yes, let's move let's on just, to him. Let's push on ahead.
1: I who doesn't love Tim Curry? I have never seen anyone who can chuckle so menacingly like Tim Curry. Like Kiefer <laughs> Southernland, I think casting Tim Curry as Cardinal Richelieu helped elevate this movie. He had some truly great moments in this, where he walked that perfect line between humor and menace. But he also, there were a couple of moments in there which it d- yeah. didn't bother me so much when I was younger. But now,
2: y- yeah,
1: you know where I'm going. Yeah, yeah paying attention found... to
0: his
2: eye lines.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, there's that. I mean, I found his presence. I mean, it was by design it was really creepy. I mean, he's supposed to be the villainous of Vicar, but his untoward advances towards, I was going to say the queen, but anything with skin. Yeah. Made, <laughs> just yeah. yeah when I watched
2: it recently, I'm like, so I, I know
1: you're the villain. I know you've straight up murdered dudes, but the scene with him putting the robe on her as she's getting out of the tub. I was like, Oh dude, I'm cool. I'm cool.
2: I mean, yeah, yeah. And was, the thing is, I, I was a little surprised, like man, this is a Disney movie. Yes. But then I remembered Hunchback, so yeah, it's not exactly. <laughs> it
1: was it's oh Hunchback. Early Hunchback 90- was
0: supposed to go was supposed to go different.
1: We have to remember this is early nineties Disney. This, it was a completely different animal than what we have today.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and, and I'm I want to make it clear I'm not disagreeing with the choice of making him the perverse preacher. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it is in the book, and it's a usable trope if pulled off well. And I, I just think that this was, again, a representation of the 90s, where if we were trying to do this, we would probably do it a little more nuanced today. Mm-hmm. That's just my guess.
2: Assuming we could find somebody at Disney who's capable of that kind of nuance.
0: <laughs> Let's just it, let that sit for a minute. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, we've looked at the film craft. We've taken a good look at the characters. Was there anything
2: else we wanted to discuss about The Three Musketeers? I think I've covered everything I wanted to say. I've got everything off my chest. It's a good movie. Watch it. Yeah. (laughs) It's been years
0: since I watched it, but I know one day I'll watch it again. It's fun. It's a popcorn film. Don't expect to see Pass Me the Envelope, Please sort of performances. (laughs) No, definitely not. But it's fun.
1: And then that will wrap it up for the second movie in our historical fiction film club. And that will lead us once again to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, how do we survive in these uncertain times?
0: Okay, here's the thing. If you're all lined up, you've got the enemy horde in front of you and you have your trusty rapier at hand. Dude, use your musket for (laughs) crying out loud. These are ranged weapons. They exist for a reason.
1: I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought in that wonderful scene in the courtyard when there's Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, and they've unsheathed their swords dramatically, and then all 150 of the cardinal's guards unsheath theirs at the same time, and then you see men in brown cloaks jumping out of the rafters, gathering around them, and they throw off the cloaks, it's the other musketeers, and they go to save the king, instead of
0: showing off their blue cloaks, why didn't they show a line of muskets? I mean, just the bang and puff of exploding powder and then the, the the red tunics stay red and everyone falls down. And, you know, hey, you've, you've got a whole and, line done. Just move on in, buddy. Yeah. And y- then y- you take off your disguise. There you go. I mean, right? Take off your disguise after you shoot them. <laughs> That's far too American.
1: See, this is why we're not allowed <laughs> to write movies because they'd be over at the 30-minute mark.
0: <laughs> well,
2: this is why I failed to write a novel because all of my characters act in... Sane and reasonable ways and then there's no Conflict
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that will wrap It up for us this episode I want to thank You all for listening in check us out online At geekatarms.com At facebook.com slash geekatarms And Mike what's our twitter
0: We are armsgeek on twitter
1: And finally from Brian, Mike and James Be safe, be blessed And be geeky Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.
0: James stepped away, right? Yep. Then I'll just do the thing. Greetings, friends, and welcome once again to the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. Here with you today is your host, James, and also with me is James and James. James, how you doing?
2: (laughs) I'm good. How are you, James?
0: I am doing fantastic, James. Uh, James has stepped away, so it's just going to be James and James for a while. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> that that took me by
0: surprise. <laughs> I am sorry. <laughs> but also kind of not. <laughs>